The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Today's scripture is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. It's on page 1015 in the Bibles under the chairs and also on the screen. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This has been the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. So the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at, uh, in Peter, First Peter, this grand picture that Peter's been painting for us of what the church is and what the church is supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do. He's been really mixing all these different metaphors together just to try to get across to us. Like, this is, this is, what, the, this is what the church is. And he uses these words, like you're, he's building you into a spiritual house. He says you're a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen race, a, a people for God's own possession. All these different pictures, all these different metaphors that he's using to try to just get us to, to see this grand picture of who God is and what he's doing in the church, what the purpose of the church is and what is the effect of the church supposed to be in the people in the community around us is really what he's starting to turn to here now in the middle of chapter two. He's getting ready to spend a, a large chunk of this book. Really, he's going to get really practical. So after Easter, when we jump back into First Peter, we're going to be out of First Peter the next two weeks. When we jump back in, he's getting really nitty gritty. I mean, he's going to be talking about men and women and husbands and wives. Doesn't that sound awesome and fun? On the other side of Easter, he's going to be talking about some real nitty gritty details about how do we live life as believers believers in a society that doesn't worship Jesus as Lord, right? So that makes some difference between us and the people around us who aren't believers. It's not just that, that we happen to go to a church or a school and worship with believers, or, and we happen to like maybe listen to Caleb or podcasts while they're listening to something else, or, but like there's actual real deep differences between those who are believers and those who are not believers. And but before he goes in that real nitty-gritty talking about like what does it mean to live in this upside-down kingdom of people who are living under the rule and reign of Jesus, he's spending verses 11 and 12 to talk about, all right, he, here's the thing. If, if the church is being who God has called the church to be, what kind of effect does that have on the society around us? All right? So, so if the church is being who God has called us to be, how should we think about society around us? And if we are being the church that God has called us to be, how should society in turn think about us as the church? What should be the result if we are being who God has called us to be as a church? Now, we asked that question last week, right? If you were here, we asked the question, what difference would it make in Myrtle Beach if we were no longer here as a church? And not just us, but Christians in general, what difference would it make in our community, in our greater community, if we were no longer here? If we no longer existed, would there be any loss felt by the people around us? 
Would your neighbors breathe a sigh of relief or would they actually feel a loss? Would the community at, in law, at large feel a loss or would, they, or would things continue to go as it always has? Would anybody miss us? Would anything actually change if we were no longer here? And so here's what we're asking the question of this text. So this is what Peter is talking about this morning. Specifically, let's ask, the, let's ask these two questions as, as we go forward. As the church, okay, as the church, how are we supposed to relate to being residents of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and the United States of America in the 21st century? How should we relate to being residents of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and the United States of America in the 21st century? And in turn, what should happen in Myrtle Beach if we are the church God has made us to be? And Peter's going to answer these, our questions this morning by telling us three things. Here's your three points for you type A-ers. He's going to answer them by saying, first of all, our identity makes us foreigners. Our proximity makes us examples. And Jesus makes us missionaries. Our identity makes us foreigners. Our proximity makes us examples. And Jesus makes us missionaries. First up. Our identity makes us foreigners. Now, to understand this point that Peter is making in verses 11 and 12, before we get there, we really have to understand these metaphors or these pictures that he's been using to describe the church. And in order to really understand that, because all the pictures that he used back in verses 9, he said, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here in verse 11, he calls us sojourners and exiles. Back earlier in this chapter, he, called, he, he described us as being built together as Christians into a spiritual house, and the wording there is saying he were being built together into a temple for God's presence to dwell. And so if he, he's using all these pictures, what is he saying? Well, every single one of these pictures points back to God's people, Israel. So in the, in the, in the very beginning, or the very beginning of kind of God's work with, with mankind, he, he called a man named Abram, and he said, Abram, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And it's where the, the Jews came from, Abraham, it's where the promise of God actually was made to him. He said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, I'm going to make a covenant with you, I will be, my, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and out of you, I will, he says, I will multiply you, and I will bless you, and I will bless your family, I will bless your, your heirs, and here's what he said, and through you, or through your offspring, he said, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So he made this promise to Abraham, who would become the Israelite people, God's chosen people. He said, I chose you out of all the other nations or all the other people. He said, in fact, I chose you not because you were smart, not because you were great. He said, I chose you simply because I chose you and I set my love upon you. I decided, Abraham, and you and all your children that will come after you, that I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will bless you, and I'm going to pour out my grace to you, and so that everybody around will see you and will say, man, the Israelites' God must be real because of all what I'm doing with my people, Abraham and his heirs after him. And so after that, his, the people multiply, uh, 
There's a famine. They end up in Egypt because Joseph was sold into slavery, and he ends up being the second command of Egypt. They, are, they go to Egypt. They're cared for there. They multiply there. They made slaves there. They cry out to God. God sends Moses. Moses comes as, as he was one of them. He was a, a, a prince in the household of Pharaoh. Then he goes into the desert. Then he comes back to them, and he leads them by God's miraculous, mighty arm. He leads them out of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, brings them, guides them to the desert for 40 years, and plants them in the promised land that he made originally to Abraham. All of this, he says, I'm doing this to show that you are my people, and I'm your God, and what it looks like for people to live under the upside-down kingdom that I'm ruler over. And he uses this language, and Moses gets them out there into the desert. They're before the Mount, Mount Sinai, where God gave them the Ten Commandments. You guys have seen the movie. It's going to be on in a couple of weeks if you haven't seen it yet. Um, and he says to them, hey, you are, in Deuteronomy, he says, you are my chosen race. I've chosen you, in Deuteronomy 10, 15, uh, and your, you and your offspring above all the other peoples of the earth. I chose you. You're, he said this to the Jews. He said, you are my chosen race, my chosen people. He, in Exodus, whenever he's right before he gives them the Ten Commandments, in, ver, in chapter 19, he says, you, he's talking to the people of Israel, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation for me. He says in Deuteronomy 7, 6, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people, listen to this, for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then when Moses, whenever he, after they receive the Ten Commandments and a little bit down the road, they're gonna build this tabernacle where God's presence dwells in the middle. He's, not only he says, are you my chosen people, but then he places a tabernacle in the middle of people where he says, this tabernacle, this tent is a sign or seal that my presence dwells among my people. Then later on, Solomon, if you're doing our reading plan, it just happened this week, Solomon builds this temple where God's presence in the middle of Jerusalem, in the middle of his people, in the middle of his nation, where God's presence dwells in the temple as a sign and seal to all the nations around that these are my people. But yet these chosen people of God's continually fall away from him and decide to do their own thing. And they continually never live up to the potential, the calling that God puts upon them. He says, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed because they'll see my glory in your midst. They can never live up to that. They can never live up to that because they were, even though God had chosen them to be his people, he'd given them his law and shown them the perfect way to walk with him, they didn't have a changed heart that would allow them to be a different kind of people. And so now Peter, he's been spending all of this letter to the churches in Asia Minor, building up to this point to say, hey guys, now you as the church, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you have been born again by the Spirit of God. His presence has come to dwell within you. And in his church that he's building together to be uh, this holy nation, this royal priesthood, this chosen race, a people for God's own possession, he is building you together into this temple or this tabernacle where God's presence dwells, in the, in, not just in the middle of his people, but in his people, so that all the nations, all the people around you might be blessed and see the glory of God on earth. That kind of changes the way you think about your life, doesn't it? 
or it should. It kind of changes the way that you think about church, or it should. That we're just not coming here to find a, a cool church with a cool pastor and a cool band. That this thing that you guys are a part of, this not just me speaking, but this, this community that we're a part of is called to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession in the middle of the land around us so that all the nations of the world might be blessed and they would look in on us and see, man, God is amazing because look at how he treats his people, and look at how they live a different kind of upside-down life from the way that I live. And so even if, and I'm cheating ahead now, even if I don't really jive with who they are, even if I don't jive with the way that they view sexuality or morality, even if I'm not sure about this whole Jesus thing, I have to say there's something going on there that I can't explain and I can't quite understand. God intended that his chosen people would be a showcase of his goodness and his glory. And Peter is saying, that's what the church is now. God's dwelling place is a remade and a reborn people. And what that does is that he's telling us here, look at verse 11. Beloved. Now, honestly, we could stop there and I could preach a whole different sermon. I know you're like a preacher. You can preach a sermon. But seriously, like anytime you see that, that's amazing. Peter is saying, not only are you beloved to me, he's calling you beloved because you're beloved by God. Isn't that cool? And it's for the same reason that God chose the Jews. He says it wasn't because you were great or because you were mighty or because you were better than anybody else. It's simply because I loved you and set my love upon you and chose you to be mine. Isn't that cool? Because I don't know how, what your life is like, but I'm kind of a mess. And there are certain days and certain weeks where I live a, a life that looks like a believer who really loves the Lord and is following after him. And there are days and weeks and moments where my life does not look like that. And my standing before God is not based upon my performance. My standing upon God is based simply because he loved me and set his love upon me and he has chosen me to be his. And some of you just need to hear that. You feel defeated all the time. You feel like you're never living up. And you know what? The truth is, <laughs> you aren't. <laughs> you're probably worse than you think that you are. But you know what? In Christ, you are far more loved than you ever dared to dream. You are beloved. Beloved, I urge you, Peter says, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. First of all, Peter's saying, hey, this new identity that you have as a reborn person of God, if you're a believer, if you're not a believer here this morning, that is not who you are. And I hope though that you'll hear the Father calling you home to himself this morning. But if you are a believer in Christ, then what, you know what that does to you? That makes you a whole new person. You are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a part of a holy nation, a person or a, and as a part of a people for God's own possession. And that new identity makes us what's, what Peter refers to as sojourners and exiles. Uh, another wording there, your, your translation might say aliens and strangers or strangers and pilgrims. What that means is saying that if you are a child of God, your identity as being his child now makes you more a citizen of heaven than you are a citizen of Myrtle Beach. 
Uh, you, you are, if your identity as a child of God makes you now a citizen of heaven more than you are even a citizen of the United States of America. If you are a believer in Christ, your new identity makes you a citizen of heaven and that means that you are part of the upside down kingdom that looks very different than the world around us that is under the rule, that is not under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That makes you and me what's called a, a sojourner or an exile. That means that you and I are not home. That longing that you feel for perfection, that longing that you feel for whenever you feel like, man, this cannot be all there is. This can't be what life was meant to be like. The truth is, it's not. But there's no perfect life now. Your longing that you feel is a long for heaven, and you cannot make heaven here. The heaven is in a new heaven and a new earth that's remade by God whenever Christ returns. That's when we'll be home again. And until then, we are foreigners and aliens in this land. That new citizenship that we have in heaven causes separation. It causes us to be different from the people around us. Hear what he said. He said, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to what? Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, you and I as believers see or should see the, the passions or the things of this world differently than the people around us who are not believers. He says that the passions of your flesh, uh, Dale read it in, for, in, in confession this morning, sexual idolatry, sexual, sexual, this uh, sexual pull, this pull towards turning almost anything into an idol, this, this pull towards wanting to live life as my, in my own kingdom, this pull to try to build up my reputation through my education or, my, uh, or through my uh, athletic ability or my looks or my uh, finances to build up this sort of a, this um, nest egg that'll keep me safe and sound on earth, like all these things that, that pull us to this worldly system Peter describes as passions which wage war against your flesh. And he says, he doesn't just say manage it. He doesn't say just try to do it less from the people around you. He says abstain or don't even go there or consider yourselves dead to the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. I think, I was talking with a friend this week, a couple times actually, a couple friends. I think it's interesting and helpful that in the past uh, say, 20, 30 years. It's when when I, I grew up in church, and so growing up in church, I can't ever remember being in a circle of people where you would admit freely, hey, um, I'm kind of a mess. Uh, I, I don't do these things that God's telling me to do here in this passage that we're looking at. Uh, you would never admit to that uh, because, honestly, there's this sort of a pressure to live like these kind of two-faced life where you act like you got it together, but you don't have it together. And so we've made some progress as a church, I think, where it's a lot more free, whether we're sitting in community group or hanging out with our friends and say, you know what, man, I am, I am terrible at this. I, I keep failing at this. I don't know about you, but I, I'm a mess at this. But you know what? Christianity isn't supposed to end there, where we freely admit what a mess we are. We're supposed to find grace there and a power there to actually abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul. 
We're actually supposed to find a grace and power in the indwelling spirit of God to actually, doesn't happen all at once, but over time, be growing and growing in grace, like a yo-yo up a, upstairs, like falling, failing, back up again, falling, failing, but a trajectory that is leading me to live a life that looks more like Christ than it did yesterday, that looks more like Christ today than it did a year ago. We should be growing in grace as believers. It's fine. Like, let's own our failings, but let's not allow ourselves to stay there. Because Christians see that our citizenship causes a separation between us and the world, but also our new birth causes us to see how high the stakes are. Notice what he said there. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which do what? Which wage war against your soul. There's a theologian, John Owen, who is incredibly difficult to read, or maybe I'm just not that smart, but he had this saying, he said, either be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin for the believer is like this weed that slowly, slowly chokes out the life. And you feel like, man, I just have a dry life. I must be in a dry season. It could be, or it could be that maybe the, passion, the passions of your flesh are waging war against your soul and are slowly trying to choke out the life of Christ in your soul. It's growing a canopy up above you and you can't get any sunlight because the sin is in your life is blocking you and is choking it out. And he says the stakes are high. Wage war against them. That's not like just play around language, is it? Killing sin or it'll be killing us. But also, Peter tells us here that when we do that, when we live this kind of life as foreigners and aliens who abstain from the passion of the flesh which wage war against our soul, that the difference is often disturbing to the people around us. Look at the second half of well, we'll just read all of verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. He's speaking here about people who are not believers. Honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that's a key phrase, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What he's saying there is that the people around us who are not believers, they will not understand why we live a life that looks so different from them, why we have different values, why we don't do the things that they do or go the places they go, why, why we say, hey, I just can't participate in that. They will not understand that, and they will oftentimes, because they do not understand it, they will actually call us evildoers. He put it, he told us right here. That the people around us will not understand and you and I should not try to live lives so that we look just like the people around us who don't love the Lord and don't serve him. Our lives should look different, and that will often be misunderstood. And Peter is, tell, Peter is telling us sometimes we're just going to have to accept that. And there won't be any explanation that's going to make sense. A cat cannot explain to a dog why it meows and doesn't bark. It just cannot explain it. It is... It is just what a cat does. And a believer cannot explain to a non-believer why we do the things that we do and why we do not do the things that we do. Because they just cannot understand the nature is different. 
do you live as if the stakes are as high as Peter is saying here? Do you actually believe, and this is a question for us to ask ourselves today, do I actually believe the passions of my flesh are actually at work to wage war against the, my soul? Do you think about, when it comes to how you live your normal life day to day, do you think about how every song, every story, every field of study, every industry has a worldview that is promoting? And do you hear every song and story and worldview that is coming at you from everyone around you who's not a believer, and, and do you sift that through the, the filter of, hey, I am a child of God, I have a he heavenly citizenship, and my citizenship is not here. How do you and I think, I think this is a hot button for us, how do you and I think about politics? See, we have to be careful not to fall into a worldly political system, no matter how much that worldly political system may pander to us as a group or appeal to us personally. I see everybody starting to shift in your chairs right now. You're like, oh, I don't know where he's going with this. Be careful, Randy. Better be careful with the little dance you're dancing here. But I think this is very important. There are different political systems, and every single one of them are worldly. And they want to pull us into that system and convince us, whether by pandering to us or because it has a personal appeal to us, that we should buy into that system. But here's just a little thing for you guys to consider. Jesus was considered liberal by the conservatives around him, and he was considered conservative by the liberals around him. And all of his believers ever since have been considered the same way. If believers follow Christ, we're going to have this ecosystem where, where we have this sexual ethic that says that sex belongs in a marriage between a man and a woman, and that's going to set us apart from the world around us. If we follow Christ, we're going to say, hey, uh, we, there's this, this moral life, this, there's this role, also this role in genders that's going to set us apart from the world around us, that's going to look at us and say, man, something about that is wrong and evil, and liberals are going to call us too conservative. But also, we're going to follow after our, our risen Christ, who's, who pursued and has pursued in his church care for the oppressed and racial justice. It's all through the New Testament. God, Jesus and his church, laying out I, in Revelation a, tr a, a church that is from every tribe, culture, language, and tongue. And conservatives look at that and say, hey, you guys are too liberal but we will never please everybody around us and it will never fit into the world system around us because we are foreigners and sojourners and aliens in this world. Our citizenship, our identity makes us foreigners in this world, but our proximity makes us examples. God hasn't just called his people to be different. He's called us to be a blessing to the people around them or to showcase or show out his glory, his beauty to the culture around us. Whenever he calls us sojourners and aliens, I, I urge you as sojourners and aliens or sojourners and exiles, the word there, sojourner or uh, or exile, is the same word for pilgrim. And the picture is someone who lives in a foreign land, but isn't just passing through. It's a picture of someone who resides, or a people, actually, because not just someone here. He's talking to us as a group. It's a picture of a people who reside in a foreign land, a foreign land but yet retain their unique culture, their unique values in the middle of that foreign land. Yet, 
they still participate in and live in and settle in the society in which they reside. So it's a picture of people who maintain their identity, but yet they're participating in the economy and the culture at large, even if there are certain things that they don't participate in because it doesn't match their identity as sojourners or exiles or pilgrims in their land. They reside in a different culture while never losing their unique cultural values and practices. See, here's the truth. A sojourning community of Jesus, okay, that's us as the church, a sojourning community of Jesus not not only is different from the community in which we live, but also seeks the good of the community in which we live. We're different from, and yet we seek the good of the city in which we live. That's where we see that here in the beginning of verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they will what? They will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, isn't that interesting? He says, they're going to call you evildoers, and yet they're going to see your good deeds and glorify God down the road. Isn't that interesting? They're not going to understand you. And yet, one day, some of them, or all of them, will glorify God because of you. It's sort of this picture when you see Acts, where it says, like, the whole community around them held the believers in awe or fear, and yet, there were those who were being added to their number daily, those who were being saved. The the picture here is whenever, um, this one time when the, the God's people, the Jews, they had been disobeying him for a long time, and God Uh, as a part of their discipline, he had them ransacked, he he had them taken out of their homeland and taken to a foreign land, taken to Babylon. And the Jews who were there, they were crying out, God, deliver us and pour out judgment upon these Babylonians for taking us into captivity. And God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah and he said, no, no, you're, you're looking at this the wrong way. He says in Jeremiah 29, 7, he says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You know what that means? That means we as believers, even though we're not a part of the culture that surrounds us, should be as a church and individually praying for the welfare of Myrtle Beach and the Grand Strand and Horry County. We should be praying that God would move in mighty ways and that God would help us to care for the people who are in need in the city that's around us. It means that we should be finding out ways personally to be servants to the community around us so that in seeking the welfare or the good in the community in which we live, we will find what? Our welfare as well. See, Christians are generally either tempted to live separate lives far away from the, from the community around them, sort of like hiding away and like, hey, if we just stay here and we cut off our TV and just wait, the Lord will return. And then there are others who look so much like the world that there's, there's no salt in the community that they're around. But he's called us to seek the welfare of the city, a sojourning community, uh, community of Jesus seeks the good of the community in which they live, and a sojourning community of Jesus points to a greater, more lasting homeland that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, our lives are to show a different kingdom 
our church is supposed to show a different kingdom. That's in the way that we live with each other. That's the way that we approach our finances and our jobs, our marriages, or lack thereof. The way we approach our children and our neighbors. The way we approach everything that we do should be pointing to a different, a greater, more lasting homeland. So that people look at us and say, they live differently. I don't understand it. I may not even like it. But man, there's something, here's a cool phrase, morally beautiful about the way that they live life. Even if I don't get it, even if I don't jive with it, there's something morally beautiful about them. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying the way that we live our lives as believers, different from and yet close to the people around us, seeking the welfare of the city and the community around us, should be beautiful to the people that surround us and therefore make Jesus beautiful to those who don't know him. So that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Does the manner of your life showcase a morality that unbelievers can't relate to, yet find inexplicably beautiful? Does our church look like that? Because that's what he's calling us to. And if we accept something less than that, we're accepting something less than what Jesus has made us to be. Are you living in close enough community with other believers that you can actually, in, in relationship with them and submission to them, showcase to the people around us that kind of radical Jesus community that's beautiful, yet unexplainable. See, we're called to be, see, our identity makes us foreigners, our proximity makes us examples, and lastly, Jesus makes us missionaries. See, this kind of life that we're talking about, that Peter's laying out here, looks a lot like Jesus. And that's the point. It's just Jesus multiplied ac across many people. Have you guys ever seen that verse where Jesus says, hey, greater things than this will you do? And wonder, like, <laughs> what in the world could he mean by that? I think one of the things it absolutely meant is that one Jesus can be easily ignorable in the Roman Empire, but a billion Jesus across the face of the earth living this kind of sojourning life in a community of him, under his rule and reign is not ignorable or should be not ignorable. Thousands of believers along the Grand Strand living this kind of lifestyle should make Jesus non-ignorable to the people around us. That's the purpose, so that they may see and glorify God on the day of visitation. The purpose is so that people who are far from God would see the undisputed reality of Jesus in his church. I don't know, like, I don't know what that does to you guys, but it makes me excited, and that makes me want to do this thing. God, make us into that people. 
Let there be such a difference in the way that we live our lives and we engage in and seek the welfare of our community that people see you and see you as beautiful in our midst. And what he says there, and glorify God on the day of visitation, has this twofold idea. It's one, that when Christ returns again, there'll be judgment for those who are not his and who are in rebellion against him. But also, it's this picture that all the commentators say is this picture that this day of salvation that is coming for those who held out and were not believers but yet saw us living this life and ended up coming to him because they saw, at least in part, they saw a beautiful kind of life lived among his people. See, Jesus' heart should be our heart, and his heart was a missionary heart. He left heaven and came to earth to rescue us. He was very different from earth, and yet he came and sought the welfare of humanity at great and incredible sacrificial cost to himself to pay the sin debt that each of us owed and rose again so that we would have hope for newness of life. And when you and I see that as believers, that should capture our hearts. We see what Jesus did for us, and that should enable us and empower us and urge us to live that kind of life so that the non-Christians around us can have their hearts captured by the beautiful love of Jesus as well. Jesus came as a servant, and that servanthood should be our motto as believers. When we see Jesus' sacrificial life for us, then we find the power that's needed to live life as servants to the city around us under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And also what this tells us lastly is that Jesus' return is the central event for the believer. It's a central event of our life. I don't know what you consider like your greatest moment in life so far. Maybe it was uh, getting a job or graduating. Maybe it was uh, getting engaged or getting married or having your child. The greatest event in the life of any believer is Christ's return. And we should build our lives around that event that's coming so that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's what we do when we come to gather together in worship. When we sing of all that Jesus is and all that God is to us. When we sit and hear someone preach the word over us, we are, that's what we are pointing to. And when we together as docs gather each week and take the bread and the juice in from the Lord's table each week, we are declaring that he is returning. That he came and he had his body broken and his blood shed for us, but he's coming again when there'll be a feast, when all that is wrong is made right. And we aren't living in a foreign land anymore, but we're home. Won't that be awesome? I, I'm gonna pray for us and the band, as the band comes forward and we're going to get ready to celebrate communion of the Lord's table together, where we're celebrating that Jesus came and that he's coming again. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. 
At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.